Yeah, I have a, another question, I guess. I'm no, you don't have time. trying to co-host. <laughs> no, we can. <laughs> you can. Um, when, I, when, as a program manager or the lead facilitator on a challenge course, whether that be in the summer or in a school program, how do I decide whether I'm going to use student belayers? Yeah. So Rich, my question back to you would be, are you talking about students doing a traditional P-bus belay or are you talking about students involved in some form of belay technique that would allow them to secure their, their classmates at height? Yeah, I would say uh, what I'm referencing is a P-bus method where you as the lead trainer or manager are teaching students to belay in a class setting or a camp setting. Yes, I very much enjoy teaching students how to belay because if they haven't belayed before, they're coming in and just absorbing all of that knowledge that you're giving them. It's hard to critique (laughs) those of us who have been belaying for years, right? We get very stuck in our ways. But for belaying with students, definitely we recommend, and it's standard that with student belayers, they have a backup belayer, a secondary belayer, someone also anchoring, and that can look a couple different ways, depending on if we're considering the pandemic, we've started putting our Australian blade tethers onto the back of um, harnesses in order to give people some distance, or you can hold on to the harness directly. Uh, But those definitely are key uh, positions when teaching students how to belay. I would add that the you, in that case, when you were speaking about your experience, I assume you were within striking distance and closely supervising those those early belays. Striking distance. <laughs> I just say, I, I always think that's a funny yeah, strike. Striking distance so yes. I could smack them yeah. if, they're, so if they're being naughty. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up, Chris. Yeah. Uh, you as a facilitator will be standing right there. And f- usually I typically stand right in front and I'm, my eyes are right on the brake hand in case I need to step in. Absolutely. I think it's a good thing to be in front and ready to grab, but not actually already grabbing. I think of like the process of learning for someone. If you could, as the like facilitator, be the, the backup. But even in that position, I think that the primary person practicing will just be like, they've got it. Phil's got it. If, if I let go. So I feel like sometimes the attention focus isn't there. And so giving empowering responsibility by just being in front and not necessarily holding onto their rope can help them through the process of being like, yeah, this is a real thing. So there is responsibility there and you might feel some weight. And if need be, I can then strike and grab that rope. Absolutely. And some of the things we do focus on, um, or I like to as well as like beyond even just the belay cycle and the positions, it's knowing that, you know, when belaying, Slow is smooth and smooth is effective. And also teaching students to practice their assertive voice, right? When we need someone to slow down, you know, we need to say it and mean it in a way that they can understand um, and, you know, understand the direction. Um, Because you as the player, you you do have some control. um, And if you need to catch up, you're telling the climber stop, preferably using their name and being very specific. Because we tend to, you know, it's a lot in that learning environment. It's, there's a lot of variables. So that's something I actually, I really like to go over beforehand that 
stop doesn't mean anything is critically wrong or scary. We just need you to slow down or pause while I catch up. Yeah, Chris and I, we were talking, I don't know what it was last year about how much time do you really need to give to belaying? Um, and I, having been a teacher before, I know class time is so short. So I think people have a tendency to want to race through uh, teaching their students belaying. Um, that can be a little problematic. So I think we were, Chris, were we talking about four or five hours or whatever that normal time would be from start to finish where somebody could belay by themselves? It's not a specific hour, but being able to really devote enough time to belaying where it's the proper thing to do versus go to maybe an Australian belay if you have those students that a wild class that I've had before where I'm really not comfortable with them belaying at that point to at least go Australian belay. Yeah, I think, you know, the hour thing is one of those challenging things to name. I think that if if people who have taken a basic 40 hour, you know, adventure basics or adventure programming training themselves to become a facilitator, if they think back through that time, those four or five days in attendance to those professional trainings, and they can kind of lock in on the amount of time they spent to learn to belay, I bet they're going to see hours of time, maybe up to 10 or 12 hours of time practicing and refining that skill to think that then students in their charge somehow are exempt from the same amount of time (laughs) is, is a bit of a stretch. Not to say that everybody learns at the same speed and is, is as competent and as quickly as each other, but it can't be a rushed process. It would be hard I, I can imagine, you know, I, I taught a, a student to belay somehow things didn't go well, maybe even the backup belayer because they didn't get enough practice. Something failed and a belay failed. At some point, somebody's going to ask me, how long did it take you to learn to belay? And how much time did you teach them to belay? And if those two are incongruent, that's a bad situation to be in. Exactly. <laughs> Not to say that you have to be, you know, a rock climber for 12 years before you can go belay, but you do need to be competent. I think that's partly also why we put in those extra pieces like strong anchors who are really coaching people to be in the best position, good backup belayers, close supervision by a facilitator or an instructor. Those can help speed up the student belaying process. I also think there's a an age component, a maturity component. And I think that it's different in different contexts. So I believe at my local rock gym, students as young as maybe 14, maybe 12 even can belay once they have been taught, supervised, and then approved to do such by taking a test. That's very different because how much force is exerted on a belay in a typical rock gym is different because of the system components than there is on a challenge course. And I think that typically in our industry, and I'd love to hear other people's thoughts about this, but high school students seem appropriate to teach a P-bus belay method with a backup belayer and an anchor, whereas middle school students should be doing some other modified form of belaying, like an Australian belay or a team belay or some other group method. Other thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there can be very immature high school students and there can be very mature middle. So there is always a nuance as there is with a lot of things. I think that the piece that's hard to articulate and I welcome support on this from the team is 
for me, in my experience training high school age and, and older, is that it can be very difficult to get the feeling of a true P-bus technique outside of an actual belay setting. So if you hang a rope, you th- run it through a staple, you have a climber walk towards you. I've seen folks who I, I would almost say that that's hopeless. They're never going to get it. But then you put them in the real live bait, as my friend Ken Demas used to say, and it's a real thing. And of course, you're, you're as, as the instructor, you're right there, you're backing up and everything is very slow. And all of a sudden it can click. So I think we also have to ask ourselves, what's the minimum acceptable skill that we need to see before a belayer can climb live? And I think that entirely depends on the system around it. Where's the instructor? Where's the backup layer? As Hana, I want to really underscore that super important point that you're telling the climber when you hear stop, it's not because something's wrong. It's because we refuse to belay quickly or rushed. Like really frame it to the climber that you're doing this to help the belayer learn can really even help a belayer not feel like they have to rush. So I think I've just noticed that some folks in a belay school setting, they can really struggle. But as soon as you're really belaying truly vertical and weighted, it can just really click. Yeah, I think that's an important piece to consider. I also wonder if I know this to be the case. I think that I feel I would feel comfortable teaching a student how to belay because my full time job is a trainer. Like this is what I do every day. So of course I would feel comfortable doing it. And sometimes I've even run into moments where I've said to some teachers who asked the question and they are all nervous about like students are allowed to blame. I'm like, of course they can just, you just teach them. But forgetting that like I'm a trainer who has a certain level of experience and skill. Therefore it's, I feel more comfortable to do so. And so my recommendation is if you're thinking of training your students that one, you feel confident in your skill set. But also maybe you've had an additional level of training. Maybe you're a level two practitioner who's more experienced anyway. And there you feel confident enough to be able to transfer that skill. The the thought that I would teach someone how to belay an adult, someone recently, and now they're going to immediately go to start teaching students how to do that feels problematic. And I would be putting way too much, they, they would be putting way too much pressure on themselves to focus on all the nuanced parts that we're sort of addressing as being like clear things that we would teach. But we know how to teach belaying because that's literally what we do all the time. So of course it would be easy for us to feel comfortable. So I think like there might be the moment if you're hearing this and you're, you've maybe got pressure from higher ups to consider doing this as part of a program, that you're very clear that you need to feel comfortable doing it and you shouldn't be pressured into teaching students how to belay if you yourself are feeling uncomfortable with belaying because there's a lot to monitor. In a beyond basics, anyone who's ever been to that training um, with us will know that we have often multiple people up in the air. And I can say for me as a trainer, I feel comfortable being able to monitor anywhere from two to three people at a time. Chris, who's been doing this a lot longer than myself, probably is able to monitor more than that, three or four people up in the air at a time. It just And I've seen him do it where the attention is just there. You know what to look for and when to feel more comfortable. I'm just not there yet. And yet I'm doing this as a training. So I think about that when I'm considering like you teaching students, there is a level of comfortability that you need to feel good at because you could make a mistake and you don't want to have, you don't want to do that because you're being pressured into doing it. Right. And, and in this conversation, we are focused exclusively on belay technique, literal PBUS. But as we know in our practice, and of course, a lot of it depends on your LOP instructor preference. 
there's more responsibility that the primary belayer can have the toe to toe check, making sure that the rope has not too much slack in it. The ropes aren't crossed that the climber has the helmet on. So there's all those things. So you got to ask yourself, is the student going to do all that? Like, is it, you know, so we're really just focusing on the technique, but there's so much more that a primary belayer often does depending on your procedures. Hey friends, so I want to quickly interrupt this episode to announce that we have a full-time adventure educator trainer position open at High Five. So I'm going to link the information in the description of this episode. So if you want to pause the episode, check out that description, go to that, um, you'll find all the information there. You'll get to work alongside myself and all the other people in this conversation and do some incredible work. Then you can find all the information at the link in the description. I look forward to uh, having you join us in our team. The deadline is March 18th. So once again, pause this, come back to this episode at a later date if necessary, but uh, submit your applications if you want to work alongside us. And back to the episode. When I've done trainings, especially in school settings, um, it depends on, again, Chris and I discussed time, but if, if time is really short in most school settings. So if your schools I've been to who have a, all they do is adventure education all year. Most of those, those groups are, are definitely having student belays for older students, but in a unit that I used to teach, which was quote, an adventure unit used in the indoor course. In eight lessons, and that's all I had because there was other curriculum. There was no way I was going to teach student belaying. I'd use the Australian belay method and it worked great. Yeah, I think context matters. Like, what is the goal with the belay? So is is the belay just to keep people safe? And the program goal is about the climber side of the event? Or is the goal of the program about the whole experience? And so the belay is a part of that. So if it's about trust, trusting yourself, trusting others, taking care of self and others, then I think you can accomplish taking care of self and others with a student belay doing PBUS or with students collectively doing an Australian belay or some other form of group belay. So really getting to the nitty gritty about what you're trying to accomplish. If you're trying to create solo independent climbers because you have a climbing club after school climbing program. Well, that's a very different context, maybe teaching them to belay um, and slowly giving them responsibility in that arena makes sense. But I bet in your average PE program where climbing isn't the focus, it's, it's more about physicality, working together as a team, all those kinds of things. I think you can get at those methods sometimes even better by alternatives. If you're wanting and you're interested in like, oh, how would I go about teaching my students how to belay? Two things. I would please contact your vendor to ask them for some advice and guidance around what that process or if it's even appropriate for you and your your school or team or camp or whatever. And then also know that you can go onto our website and on our in our resources tab, you can find the level one skill assessment that that could be used as a methodology of assessment of your students. You could just pull that off and use that as 
your assessment tool of are they feeling competent and comfortable doing those things? And then you can let them go. It could be a process of assessment. Here's a question for the group since it's about participant belayers. Why don't you just give them assisted belay devices like the Grigory or one of those other style of Trango cinch? The Grigory and assisted device should come after the practice of using it without the assisted component. Because I think that the assisted part makes it feel like it's like easier, but there are other potential hazards that come from an assisted device that you could also just teach. And I know that there's a lot of rock climbing gyms out there that just go straight to Grigory lessons, and that's the way they teach because that helps them mitigate some of those risks. Uh, but that's my perspective on the progression of learning. I think it's it's better to progress through an ATC or an Aperture device to the Grigory than skipping that step. I mean, I would say even if you choose to use Grigory's in your program, if you're using student participant belayers, they should still have a backup that the device itself shouldn't be the backup to the human in control, that they're still, they still may need to be anchored in space so that they don't lose their stance, that they still may potentially lose control of the belay and simply having someone in that backup break hand roll can still make it a significant difference in an assisted belay device. Thank you to the team once again for answering that question on uh, participant and student belays. Once again, feel free to connect with us either by our email. That's actually all of all of us have individual names. Individual names, of course we do. Uh, we all have individual emails, <laughs> which is our first initial last name at highfiveadventure.org. So H I G H, the number five adventure.org. I'll throw our emails into the description of this episode so if you want to reach out to anyone individually. As you listen to us, if any one of us your voices, maybe you don't know us, speaks to you more than you can just reach out to that individual. And then uh, you can also connect via the Instagrams at Vertical Playpen. And I encourage you to do so there because I always respond to all messages I receive and I welcome them greatly. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playpen. And then what about... Thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs>